All right. Welcome to everybody joining us through Facebook Live today. Uh, we're going to be doing some more Bible Q&A. And also welcome to all of you joining us from the BibleQuest.org app. Stephen, as you just mentioned, we still have a couple of unanswered questions that we didn't get to yet, and I just can't wait to see how you guys deal with them. Yeah, and um, as always, we're, we're wanting to take live questions as we go today. Uh, we want to just look to the Bible for our answers, and uh, we hope that uh, these are helpful to you as you search for truth. Uh, we're going to give our, our best stab at these. We've got some challenging questions still in the queue today. We've got three that we haven't uh, answered yet, <clears throat> and uh, the first one that we're going to talk about today is going to come from Matthew chapter 24, and um, a chapter that deals with the destruction of Jerusalem and uh, some questions about uh, what all that chapter may be referring to. If we have time, um, after that, we're going to be talking about another text in Luke chapter 16, um, specifically verses 19 through 31, and the uh, account of the rich man and Lazarus and some questions about what happens after we die. And if we have time after that, we'll see if we have time today. Uh, we will talk about a third question that comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and the question about uh, the covering that's mentioned there and uh, uh, certainly some challenging things about, about that text. So, Stephen, um, uh, some of these are, as you had mentioned, they're gonna, they are difficult questions. We may not have the answers completely satisfactory. Uh, apparently, we have some different things on, on those questions ourselves, and we'll debate them back and forth. But I also want to encourage the audience, as we're going through these questions and we're discussing them, we want your input. We also mm -hmm. want that might raise some more questions. So get us live with those questions and, uh, as we're going through them. But before we get to that first question that you mentioned, Scott. Hi, Scott. Hey, Drew. How's it going today? It's going good, but where are you? You're not in uh, Exton, Pennsylvania today. Uh, well, I'm usually not in Exton, Pennsylvania. That's right. Your brother, Pennsylvania, but I'm not even in the state of Pennsylvania at all this week. I'm in, I'm in western Kentucky, about 30 miles from the Mississippi River. Wow, glad to have you here. So who's the guy that's in Exton? That would be me. <laughs> or that would be I. Aha. <laughs> uh -huh. uh, hi, Jeff. Good afternoon. All right. All right, well, let's start in. And again, uh, for those of you tuning in, thanks to everybody who's joined so far. Please feel free to put your questions, uh, your Bible questions, in the comments below. Or if you're joining us through the Zoom app and the Q&A box, we'll try to get to those as they come in. We're going to start today in Matthew chapter 24. And I'd like to just start out by reading the introduction to the chapter. Um, Genesis 24, uh, excuse me, Genesis, Matthew 24, uh, starting in verse 1. It says, we're just backing up to get the beginning of the context there. <laughs> That's right. Let's just start the beginning of the Bible. We'll get there. If you read the whole Bible, sooner or later you'll get through it. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. Okay, so um, Genesis. Wow, now you got me saying it wrong. <laughs> Matthew 24. Matthew chapter 24, verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, 
the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So that's kind of the introduction, introduction to this uh, chapter in Matthew, and we have uh, other accounts in Mark and Luke. Uh, but our question today comes specifically about Matthew 24. I'm going to read the question again here um, so that we can all be on the same page. Uh, it says, please reconcile Matthew 24, verses 28 through 31. So that's kind of the question, the section in question, verses 28 through 31. Please reconcile Matthew 24, 28 through 31 with Matthew 24, 1 through 26, and Matthew 24, 32 through 34. So the section before and the section after. Is Jesus still talking about the destruction of Jerusalem? Or is he referring to the second coming? Which doesn't make sense because it seems like he starts addressing that in verse 26. How can Jesus, quote, come on the clouds of heaven, end quote, during slash after the destruction of Jerusalem. So our question really centers around that phrase in uh, verse 30. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. <clears throat> so how do we reconcile that with this context about the destruction of Jerusalem? And Jeff, I know you had some, some thoughts, comments on that. Yeah, there's a lot of <clears throat> there are a lot of times in biblical history when God brought a judgment upon some nation or some city, and oftentimes those judgments, those events, are referred to as days of the Lord. And uh, there was a day of the Lord on Babylon. There was a day of the Lord on Egypt. Um, language that's often used to describe those days of the Lord includes the figures of clouds. And darkness, the sun, the moon, the stars not giving their light. And specifically, the idea of the Lord coming in the clouds is seen in what I think is the kind of the prototypical passage. Uh, and that's Psalm 18. And Psalm 18 doesn't mm. use the phrase day of the Lord, but it has a lot of these elements in it. And so let's take, maybe just take a quick moment and I'll talk us through Psalm 18. And then I expect we'll want to look at a few Old Testament passages and some of you guys will have various ones you want to turn to. But in Psalm 18, you have David describing, well, he starts out, the Lord is his rock, and then he describes the problem that he had had, the cords of death. This is verse 4. The cords of death encompassed me, and the torrents of ungodliness terrified me. The cords of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. So he's facing some terrible, difficult situation. He has enemies, and he calls on the Lord. And then verse 7, the earth shook and quaked. The foundations of the mountains were trembling and were shaken because he was angry. God is angry, not with David, but with David's enemies. Smoke went up out of his nostrils, fire from his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down. Any pilots that we may have uh, watching today are familiar with the idea of a low ceiling or a high ceiling. A low ceiling is when those clouds come down low. He bowed the heavens. He brought the skies down. With thick darkness under his feet, he rode upon a cherub and flew. This is language. We see something very similar in the book of Ezekiel, where basically God yeah. throned above the living beings. It's a picture of God riding in his or riding upon his chariot. And uh, so here comes God riding upon a chariot. He flew. He spoke. Fed upon the wings of the wind, he made darkness his hiding place. 
his canopy around him, darkness of waters, thick clouds of the skies. And so you have this idea of God coming in response to David's prayer and coming against David's enemies, pictured as coming in the clouds. And for what it's worth, they're not quite fluffy clouds. <laughs> yeah. It's ominous, dark clouds from the perspective of David's enemies. This That's something I already I always pictured it that way, is like he's coming on the clouds of heaven. You know, you're picturing like the second coming, and it's like the sun is shining, and then there's the clouds, and it like comes out, and there's like this white puffy cloud. And, and it's just not that. It's, it's God coming in judgment, and he's yeah. using the storm almost as his chariot. He's riding in on a squall front, uh, just coming in to wipe him out. Exactly. And so we, so it's this figurative language to portray this judgment of God upon David's enemies. And, and it goes hand in hand with some of the language we see in other Old Testament passages where the phrase day of the Lord is used. And that idea of the clouds is extended to just darkness because the sun, the moon, the stars all, it, the lights went out. Lights went out for Babylon. The lights went out for uh, Egypt. Um, and the they lights are going out. shaking events. Earth-shaking events, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's look at a couple more verses like that, and then let's come back to Matthew 24. And for those in the audience who might not be familiar with the text, let's start with some very foundational things about how do we know that some of the text here is talking for, uh, about the destruction of Jerusalem. And then as you go through perhaps the latter part of 24, but at least chapter 25, how do we know that some of it is something else and, and then get in some of those details uh, later? But like, like Jeff was saying, here's another one in Isaiah 19.1. This is an oracle against Egypt. And this is Isaiah chapter 19, verse 1. An oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes. Now, this, though, is not the final day of judgment. This is not Christ coming at the end of time. This is judgment on Egypt, which is again in context. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. And the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence. The heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. And I will stir up Egyptians against Egyptians, and they will fight each against his another in each against his neighbor. And so this is talking about specific uh, judgment coming on Egypt, and yet it's got that image there of God coming on a cloud. Yeah, and if you back up just a little bit to Isaiah 13 and the oracle about Babylon, yeah, chapter 13 and verse 10, it mentions, as ta talking about judgment coming on Babylon, it says, For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Um, so he's coming in judgment on this proud, wicked nation, but the judgment is pictured in terms of the sun and the moon and the stars going out. Kind of like Jeff said a minute ago, you know, it's lights out for Babylon, but it's pictured in almost this cosmic scale, even though what he's talking about here is not the end of the world, it's a judgment that would come on the nation of Babylon. Like and in so verse 12, I will make the heavens tremble, the earth will be shaken out of its place. 
that sounds global, but then as you read on down through the text, I'm going to read the, the Medes against them. So it's the end of Babylon. So let me get this straight, guys. So what you're saying is that every time we see that term, <clears throat> the Lord coming in the clouds, it's not referring to or not always referring to the final judgment. Right. So now, does that bring us back then to our question is which is which here? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you were going to say something, uh, Jeff, I interrupted you. Well, just because th there is a final day of the Lord that's going to come, and we're living in an age where people doubt that, and even believers are beginning to say, no, there's never going to be a, a return of the Lord. But, but Jesus literally ascended up into the sky, into the clouds, in Acts 1-9, and when the apostles watched him go, there were a couple of men, apparently angels, standing there saying, why look ye into heaven? Uh, he's going to come back in like manner. So there's going to come a time in the future when the Lord is literally going to come back and the dead are going to be raised and all of that. But we're seeing that there are a lot of precursors to that throughout history. You could say where God brings judgment upon one city, one nation, whatever. And this language that we're talking about is used. And so that brings, I think you, you, you worded the question. Well, that, that brings us to which are we talking about in Matthew 24? Yeah. Right. All we want to establish first is that when you hear those words coming on the clouds of heaven and the sun and the moon being dark, it doesn't necessarily mean the end of the world. Right. Right. Using not, not yeah. Consider this verse from Luke 17, 22. Jesus said, the days will come when you shall desire to see one of the days of the son of man. It's <laughs> not just one day of the Lord. There were, there was, there's been days of judgment throughout the old Testament. And there's more than one talked about in the New Testament. So, Matthew 24, let's set the stage for it a little bit. Um, what time period in Jesus' life does Matthew 24 take place? That's right, near the end of his life. Last week. He's in Jerusalem. He made the triumphal entry. And from the time of the triumphal entry to his death, he makes a number of references to the fact that Jerusalem and Judea are going to be judged. The nation yeah. uh, 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 of the Jews as well as specifically Jerusalem. Okay, do you remember just, we're not going to take time to read them all, but what were some of the, as the conflict is building there, what are some of the references that Jesus gives in that last week building up to this judgment is coming on Jerusalem? Were you talking about maybe some of the abomination, as you see the abomination? That's one of the latter ones, and that's in Matthew 24. But even back before that, earlier in the week, what are some the parable of the parable of the householder who um, sent uh, servants to, to collect the fruit from the husbandman, and they rejected the servants. He sends his son, and they kill the son. And the question in the parable, uh, Jesus puts the question, pertains to that parable to the people who are listening to him, what's the Lord going to do with those miserable men? And, uh, and the answer is, uh, he will, uh, they understood the answer was he will miserably destroy those miserable men and will let out the vineyard to other husbandmen. And then Jesus kind of makes it clear. Yeah. And, and that's you. <laughs> so, yeah. And isn't there one of the, go ahead, go ahead. Isn't there one place where Jesus said that they'll come and he'll destroy their city and burn it? Uh, I don't remember. Look at Luke 1941. He drew nigh and saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things 
which belong unto peace, but now they're hid from your eyes. The day shall come upon you when your enemies shall cast a bank around you, compass you in on every side, uh, compass you around, excuse me, and keep you in on every side. They shall dash you to the ground. And, and he continues to talk about the destruction. So as he's coming to the city, he knows what's happening to it. Now, historically, when did this happen? When was Jerusalem surrounded by armies? When did they build banks to get it against it and destroy it? The 70 AD, right? Yeah, and who did it? Rome. Yeah, Rome. Titus. And uh, ironically, if you remember when Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin are talking, and they're saying, we got to do something about this guy, because if we don't do something, the Romans are going to come and take away our place in our nation. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, they're thinking just politically. Oh, if he gets declared king, Caesar won't put up with that. We'll lose our place. So we've got to kill him before that happens. But actually, the irony is they then bring the judgment on themselves, and the Romans will come and destroy their place and their nation. So very big event uh, of of this. And then the, the passage that Stephen read before, they're at uh, Jerusalem. Chapter 23, what kind of things were in chapter 23? All the woes against the Pharisees. Yes. rebukes of the Pharisees. And he said, on you is going to come the blood of all the righteous that has been shed. He said, it's going to happen on this generation. That's at the end of 23. And then at the end of Matthew 23, he says, what is left to you desolate at the end of Matthew 23? Your house is left to you desolate. And what was their house? The temple? Yeah. Then we get to this uh, text that Stephen opened us with. And Mark gives a little bit more detail. What are the disciples saying about the temple as they're walking by? Look at these great stones. This is just incredible. Jesus, look at this. And then Jesus says those strong graphic words he says you see all these things what there will not be one stone left on another yeah jeff do you remember when we were uh you told me about uh they were going to be showing that model of the temple that uh lee ritmeyer hey scott jeff is jeff is having internet problems he is uh messaging us on the chat window here he's not able to hear so he's gonna have to step out for a minute um So it's just the three of us right now. Right. Uh, well, well, we went. This was an archaeologist who had done a rebuild of the temple, and uh, and it was beautiful. It was massive, the whole Temple Mount. But the temple itself, in his in his lecture, he pointed out. Now we can't actually do archaeological work on the temple itself. And then he used Jesus' words. He says, "Because not one stone was left upon another." Oh, That's wow. what happened in 70 AD. And if, if you want to look up online Josephus uh, in his work, The Wars of the Jews, you can read about the destruction and how the, the Romans leveled uh, things. Now, that brings us then to this text. So they see these stones. They're saying, Master, behold, what manner of buildings and stones? He says, not one is going to be left upon another, which led them to ask those questions. What were those questions again that they asked? Verse 3 of Matthew 24, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? 
All right. Premillennialists take this whole chapter to be talking about what? The tribulation and the future kingdom being established. Yeah, their whole system, they, they say a temple is going to be rebuilt and it'll be torn down. Uh, they see all of this as future. But over in Mark 13, it's very specific. Jesus said, do you see these things? Not one of these stones will be left on another. He's not talking about the stones of some future temple. He was talking about those stones in that temple. Real, real quick, Scott, Andy Dieselkamp just chimed in. and He he correctly identified the verse I was trying to talk about earlier. It's Matthew 22, 7, where this is before Matthew 24, where it says the king was angry. He sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Oh, that's right, and burned their city. That's right. Oh, anyway, that's right. Carry on. Thanks, Andy. Thank you. All right. Then Jesus goes on and he says, Matthew 24, 4, take heed that no one lead you astray. Well, have a lot of people been led astray on Matthew 24? Yeah. yeah. Jesus says, be careful. Don't do that. And he says, many are going to come in my name. You'll hear of wars, rumors of wars, etc., earthquakes, uh, famines, etc., etc. And a lot of people read all this and they think this is the final day. But there's a verse in this chapter that doesn't allow that, especially. There's a time key in this chapter that says all of these things are going to happen in this generation. Which verse is that? Verse 34. Yeah, Stephen, read that for us, please. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. This generation will not pass away till all these things take place. It matches that statement that he said back in the scathing rebuke, Matthew 23 chapter. He said, uh, look back upon, in verse 35, upon you will come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of Abel the righteous to the blood of Zechariah. Verse 36, truly I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. Mm-hmm. All right, so well, let, let's just think for a minute. Were there famines in the first century before 70 AD? Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Does the Bible, in fact, mention a big one? Yeah. Yeah. There's at least two that I'm aware of. Paul was even collecting funds from other Gentile Christians to take it down to Jerusalem. At the end of Acts 11, it mentions the great famine that came about in the days of Claudius, uh, which was in the 40s uh, AD. Uh, Were there any earthquakes in the first century? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there were earthquakes in the in the first century. In fact, the Bible mentions a particular one, kind of localized to help Paul out. Where was that? Oh, uh, in Philippi with the uh, yeah. Philippian jailer that opens all the doors of the prison. Yeah, and so you could say, oh, look, they had wars, they had earthquakes, they had famines, so it had to be then. But actually, Jesus says, what in Matthew chapter 24? There's going to be things like this. And then he says... Verse 8, these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Yeah, yeah. All these things are the beginning of the birth pains. That And, and what century has there not been wars or famines or earthquakes? So whenever people today get all riled up, oh, there was a war and a famine and an earthquake. It, it's, that, that's, that's not it. All right, any comments from you guys before we proceed through here? No, go ahead. All right. Um, in fact, look at this in verse six. You shall hear of wars and, and rumors of wars. 
See that you be not troubled. These things must needs come to pass, but the end is not yet. They'll later get to a specific sign of the end. Uh, drop, drop, drop down here to verse 14. The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a testimony unto all nations. Um, now that's a point that premillennials will say that couldn't have been back then because it had been preached to the whole world yet. But however we take this phrase in Matthew 24, why can't we take it the same way we take the phrase in Colossians 1? What did Paul say about the gospel being preached in Colossians 1? Preached to the whole world. All creation under heaven, if I remember the phrasing right, let me look that up. And was he speaking future tense or past? Past tense. Past tense there. Yeah. Um, this is Colossians chapter 1, verse 23. If so, be that you continue in the faiths, uh, rounded and steadfast, not moved away uh, from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached in all creation under heaven. Uh now, you could take that one or two ways. You could use it meaning the known world there at that time. Uh, or if you say, no, that has to mean somebody went everywhere. Well, if Matthew 24 means, you know, Thomas had to go to India or somebody else here or there, then take Colossians the same way. Whether you assume that people had been past the Mediterranean area at this time, which some people could have been going past there and, and far beyond. In fact, the Roman Empire even went up to uh, Britain. Um, and there's some legends of apostles going up there. We don't know if the history on that is legend or, or accurate history. But whatever it means in Colossians, why can't it mean the same thing in Matthew 24? So what you're saying, Scott, basically, is that uh, some people look at verse 24 and say, well, the gospel has not literally been preached in like every single nation today. So like it can't be the end, but you're saying that when we look at passages like Colossians one verse 23, which was written in the early sixties or right, in the first century is that we could already say in the first century, right. that The gospel has been proclaimed to all nations. Right. And so the end of the temple, the end of the Jewish system and all that, that this chapter is discussing can come about after the gospel has been preached to all nations. Right. Then in verse 15, when therefore you see the abomination of desolation, which is spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let him that reads understand. And you can go back to the book of Daniel and see references to this abomination of des desolation. Verse 16 says what? Let those who are, that are where do what? Judea, flee out to the mountains. Yeah. Well, if the second coming of Christ, is that going to apply only to people in Judea? No. The mountains aren't going to help you. Yeah, yeah. The mountains are not going to help you on the final day. Right. And and it's, the final day is not going to be just about Judea. So this is a localized thing. Let those in Judea flee to the mountain. One idea about what abomination of desolation might be is that when the Roman armies came in, they had... They had these, if you've ever watched an old Roman uh, movie about Roman times and New Testament times, you ever see the soldiers and the centurions when they have those staffs and there's some things up at the top? Those were actually also idols that they would worship. <coughs> and the Jews 
wanted those not to be in their city. Some of the Jews had petitioned Pilate when those incidents were brought into the city. And they kept insisting we can't tolerate those in our city because it was an abomination. Uh, it, it was an idol. And Pilate threatened to kill them all. And they just, Josephus said they laid their necks bare and said, go ahead and kill us because it would be better to kill us than us let that be in our city. Pilate backed off and the army was moved out. But in 70 AD, the army didn't move out. The army came in and conquered. And when the army came, they would have been carrying what? The and that might be the yeah, might be the reference there. All right. Real quickly here, let me scan down through some things. It talks about, you know, pray that your flight not be on the Sabbath, et cetera, et cetera. And if anybody has any doubt that this part is the destruction of Jerusalem, let's look over at the Gospel of Luke. Turn over Luke, the parallel passage, and we want what chapter? Chapter 22. No, excuse me. 21, I believe. Thank you. Chapter 21. Listen to this same, same language. He's talked about not one stone upon another, wars, famines, etc. And this is how it says it in Luke 21, verse 20. When you see Jerusalem compassed with armies, know that her desolation is at hand. Then let those that are in Jerusalem flee to the mountains. So clearly, and as our, as our questioner has pointed out, how do we know when? Because he, he knows that this is about Jerusalem. And we know this is about Jerusalem. But then we come to the some of the trickier parts. Verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be, this is Matthew 24, 29. The sun, sun will be darkened. And the moon will be light. And the stars will fall from heaven. And the powers of heaven shall be shaken. Shaken. But we saw earlier, Stephen brought up Isaiah 13, that the prophecy of judgment on Babylon involved how many of these elements? Pretty much all of them. Almost yeah. all of them. Yeah, that, that the moon and the sun be darkened, the heavens, the, the, uh, what's it, be rolled up and the earth shaken out of its place. Then you'll see the sign of the Son of Man coming on the clouds. Well, we want to immediately go to the final day in our mind, but what did we see in Isaiah 19? The judgment on Egypt. It was a local judgment. Yeah. Riding on the clouds, riding on those dark storm clouds is the picture. And then we have this. Look at verse 32. Jesus puts a little parable in here, and I think it's noteworthy how different this parable is from the parable later in the chapter. Both parables are going to relate to whether or not you can see something coming. And what's the before verse 34, where he says, we're coming off on the verse where you said, this generation won't pass till all these things happen. Somebody read verse 32. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. So the parable in this part of the chapter is say, it uses the fig tree and it says, what can you do? Watch for the signs, and once you start to see them, you'll know. Here it yeah. comes. But after verse 34, he gives a different type of parable. He's going to say, the Son of Man's, this, 
the coming he talks about after this, he doesn't say it's going to be like a fig tree. It's going to be like a what? It's going to be like a flood. Like the days of Noah. As in the days of Noah, flood came and took them all away. And then also, verse 43, 42. Be like a thief. Yeah, be like a thief. And the whole point there is that what? You You're not expecting it. There's not, there's not signs that you'll be able to see. Yeah, yeah. Verse 44, be ready for in an hour that you think not the Son of Man coming. So there, there's a lot of challenging things here. One of the challenging things, there seems to me to be kind of a natural break, maybe in Matthew 24, going up to verse 34, where it says, this generation will pass away, but all these things won't pass away till all these things be accomplished. And then verse 35, heaven and earth shall pass away. That's not a local judgment, sounding to me. All right. uh, the, before he's talked about Jerusalem. Now he says heaven and earth will pass away. And now he starts talking about a judgment that will not be like a fig tree, but a judgment that will be like a thief in the night. You won't know when it's coming. Now, I'll make a comment here and turn it over to you guys. Um one of the difficulties is that in Luke 17, a lot of the language you see in Matthew 24a and a lot of this language you see in Matthew 24b are kind of intersecting. Yeah, in uh, a different order. And so some people think, well, all of Matthew 24 is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. But look at verse 1 of chapter 25. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be like what? Ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. And then we have uh, another parable about the, the talents, and then we have the parable about the separating the sheep from the goats. Is the separating the sheep from the goats, and these go to eternal life, and these go to eternal fire, is that 8070 in Jerusalem? No, that's beyond yeah. that. Yeah, when it says all nations will be gathered before him, no, that, that's final judgment. Right. So at some point, the text switches from destruction of Jerusalem to the final judgment. I, I'm inclined to see it at 34 and 35. Not that there's not challenges, uh, but I'm inclined to see that. What are your guys' thoughts? Well, the questions that they asked, there was three questions. Three, when you say they're like three different questions, maybe they were thinking it was all the same question, but really it's... I bet they thought it was all the same question. Yeah, and so sometimes we then might think the same thing. Right. Yeah. But he's giving them answers specifically to those questions, and there's, like, I like the way you worded that. There's this break where all of a sudden he's talking about something bigger than just Jerusalem. And and I will say, just Jesus typically does that kind of thing is they'll ask a very specific question about something and Jesus will answer that. But generally he'll answer something on an even more deeper or fundamental level. Uh, Jesus doesn't just give a one for one answer. Usually he will give something uh, even deeper. I think that's what we see in the transition between Matthew 24 and 25 and following is we can agree. I think to a large extent, the beginning is about the destruction of Jerusalem in 87. Right. But at some point, he switches and starts talking about the final judgment at the end of time. Uh, there's a debate over exactly when uh, that uh, happens. Um, and uh, I will say, too, this is Joy Reid's specific question. Um, she asks, is Jesus still talking about the destruction of Jerusalem 
and 28 through 31 of Matthew 24. Um, from what I can tell, from what we've talked about today, I, my inclination in that text is to say, yes, in that section, he is still talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Even and though that's it's still before like verse 34, you know, it's after that that he says, you know, this generation will not pass away till all these things have happened. So that kind of locks you in. Yeah. But very good question. Um, there's a there's a comment in coming in from Sergey. He says, "I think it is much easier to explain all the difficulties by just Jerusalem answer rather than by the offered solution." Okay. So that would be. I, I uh, that. Go ahead, or I'll see if I spot it on here. Yeah, it's in the Q and A box. In the Q and A box on the app. While you're doing that, I've had a a, a critic. Of the Bible, I have a conversation with. It says, "Why does Jesus always do this? He doesn't talk plainly and clearly." That's an interesting observation he made, and that's true. He's not always clear about things. Why does he do that? One thing it makes people look. Yes, he says that's why he spoke in parables. Mm -hmm. It's not for them. Not that he was going to prevent them from hearing the, uh, the, the, the true message, but they weren't interested. Whereas the disciples, they actually came to him and says, Lord, what did you mean by that? That's what he wants us to dig in deeper. What do you mean by that? Now we may or may not get the answers all the time, but that's part of the, the faith of Jesus Christ. Our faith in Jesus Christ is, well, let's see if we can get to those answers. But now, did you see that comment there, Scott? Yes, yes, I did. I didn't hear it when you read it, but in other words, he was saying he thinks all of Matthew 24 is the destruction of Jerusalem. Possibly, right? Possibly. And, uh, and a lot of people believe that. If it is, though, then you've got a sudden transition from 24 to 25, even though 25 says, then the kingdom will be like, and then suddenly, you. so somewhere in here, there's a switch. We've got a couple of other comments uh, on our uh, Facebook thread right now. Andy Dieselcamp comments, Scott isn't, quote, heaven and earth, an idiom for the powers that be and not necessarily to be distinguished from the events already discussed. So I think that would be specifically on your comment about verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. If I'm, I, I, I could, I, I am not super confident in my understanding of some of the things in, of the text here. So I don't want to be real adamant. My inclination is he means heaven and earth will pass away. Uh, meaning heaven and earth will pass away. Um, Luke seven, my, the way I tend to look at this passage is especially complicated when you try to fit it in with Luke 17, where a lot of this language is kind of lasagna in. But in Matthew 24, there, there are noticeable differences between 34 earlier and 35 later. Let me just mention what two or three of them are. Before Matthew, before verse 34, we have clear references to Jerusalem. You know, it was, your house is going to be left desolate. These stones are not going to be left on another. Let those in Judea flee to the mountains. And in the Luke 21 passage, it's particularly Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. 
after verse 34 in Matthew 24, you have no reference to Jerusalem or Judea. The language from the end of 24 through 25 seems to be more universal. Heaven and earth, and then Matthew 25, all nations will be gathered before me, etc., etc. Before 34, you've got, this is like a fig tree. You can look at it and see it's about to happen. After verse 35, this is like a thief. You're not going to know when it's going to happen. Before verse 34, what was the solution to be delivered? Run. Run to the mountains. After verse 35, what's the solution? Be ready. Be ready. Be ready. Be one of the ones that's faithful when he comes. Uh, and so it could be that those things are coincidental, but they they seem significant to me, the, the two different emphasis between the destructive Jerusalem and the end. Yeah. Uh, certainly so, by the time we get to 25, we're looking at final judgments. The, a challenging text, and one we want to uh, keep an open mind about uh, as we study. There's things, there's points to be made on both sides of that. Um, we do have just a few minutes left today, and we have uh, another question that just came in on the uh, Facebook thread from Alexander Shepard. Good to hear from you again. Uh, he says, if I might ask, having studied the Bible for years, I have yet to see anything that covers someone who says they are transgender. Is there a reconciliation of this with the word? And so that is a uh, very relevant pertinent question right now. So it sounds like the question is specifically uh, having, after having studied the Bible for years, not seeing anything that covers someone who says they are transgender. So it's like, what let's, let's, Bible verses? If I may, may interrupt, that is such a good, timely question. I think we need to spend some time on that, don't you? I think it may be good to come back and answer that more fully. That's what I'm about. I, I think, though, that we can start on it for now. Let me throw this out. Yeah. What do transgendered people usually do? They, they wear the clothes of the opposite. They wear the clothes of the opposite sex. And then sometimes they will have some surgery to, uh, you know, remove or, or plastic surgery, uh, apply something to them. And then sometimes they'll take some hormone therapies. But it generally starts with they start wearing the clothes of the opposite sex. What did the Old Testament say about that? The Bible addresses that. A man shall not wear that which pertains to a woman, and a woman shall not wear that that pertains to a man. And then I think it says it is an abomination. The cross-dressing has been around for a long time. Yeah, I forget where that's at, but I do recall that verse. Um, I'm trying to find that real quick. Yeah, let, I don't want to shuffle it off because I'd like to spend a little bit more time on that, so maybe we can pick that up next week. But um, Sergey then put in another uh, question. Um, it says, historically speaking, at that, this is now back to the Matthew question, Matthew 24 question. Uh, historically speaking, at that time, the Jews had no idea about the second coming, so none of the listeners could even theoretically understand Jesus if he was speaking on that issue. Um, and that's a good observation, but does um, they didn't understand a lot of things. That's true, and lots of times when we're hearing something, we're hearing, like for instance, when Jesus said this, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Well, when did he say that? 
before the crucifixion. Yeah, that didn't make sense to them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so people, you have to bear your own cross. People today will say, oh, bear your cross means the burdens you have to bear. No, back then they knew what a cross was. A cross right. is somebody, some, somebody get killed off, and that's our old man has to be killed off. There's another one where he says, uh, you'll have to eat the flesh, eat my flesh yeah. and drink my yeah. blood. That was before he died, right? Yeah, yeah. And that might be an area where they didn't understand. I think clearly didn't. A lot of people said, that's a hard saying, who can hear it? And when Jesus said to the apostles, are you guys going to leave too? Peter does not say, no, because I understood it. That's not what Peter says. Peter says, no, because where would we go? You've got the words of eternal life, John 6. Yeah, so I don't think anybody understood that when he first said it. Okay. All right. We got, we got a few we minutes. We're just about coming to the end here, and I, I really okay. like I'm seeing more comments coming in. Uh, let's just read them quickly. I'll take Matt's comment, and, and then you can do Sergey. Well, real, real quick, since we're talking on the Matthew 24 thing right at the moment, um, yeah. you go ahead. You can go ahead and read Sergey's comment, Drew. Okay. Oh yeah, because I still pertain to that, and and obviously. He says, a more radical discontinuity uh, from Jesus was necessary there to help them avoid misunderstanding him. Okay. Good. So, um, Andy Dieselkamp also commented uh, with a question on Matthew 24, and he said, what is the practical outworking of Matthew 24, 40, and 41? Um and so that may be more uh, than we have time to get to today. Uh, oh, two men yeah. in the field, one the taking one, one left, two women grinding at the mill, one taking and one left. Yeah, that is a challenging, particularly yeah. challenging section. Yeah, yeah. Um, and not all of us are going to agree on all of these things because these are challenging questions. So I, I would also like to spend more time getting to those as well. We'll add these things to our list. Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, so on the transgender question, uh, I want to spend some more time on this next week, Lord willing, and come back to this. Um, so Alex's original question just has to do with what, what verses may pertain to this, to someone who says they are transgender. Uh, in Deuteronomy 22 and verse 5, uh, part of the old law of Moses, it says, A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Um, so right. specifically, I think we're out of time today. Thank you, everybody. Scott, Scott hold up. Um, we also had a question uh, from Matt Vaughn, uh, who, and this is dealing not so much with cross-dressing, but with those who may struggle from maybe what we might call gender dysphoria, where he says, I think the main problem is that you would be blaming God of messing up. If you are a man trapped in a woman's body, then you are stating God didn't create you the right way, usurping his authority. Um, so that dealing with the, the question of, I, I am a man biologically, but I feel like I am a woman trapped in a man's body. And the question of, well, did God somehow make a mistake? Do I have sort of some other part of me that's truly female, but I'm stuck in a male's body? And that that's really gets into the question of gender dysphoria. Uh, and that uh, that situation, but I'd like to come back to those questions next week uh, a little bit, since that is such a timely topic right now, and maybe even make a distinction uh, between some of those questions uh, and try to, to think about that some more. But good questions, thank you everybody for uh, 
submitting your questions today and for good discussion. And we hope we'll be able to, to pick up uh, with some more questions next week. Uh, thank you very much, too, Stephen. Thanks, everybody.